welcome to the next episode in the Women's Energy Council podcast series. Today I'd like to introduce you to Nicola McLeod, Executive Vice President and General Counsel at Spirit Energy. Over the next 30 minutes, Nicola will share her journey into the oil and gas industry and what she has learned along the way, including how she joined Merce Oil, thinking it would be for a year or two and ended up staying for over a decade, the difference between working for a large oil and gas company with an international focus versus a smaller oil and gas business with a more regional focus, how to make sure the decisions we make in 2020 impact the longer term strategy in the right way, and the importance of not just paying lip service to diversity but rather setting the right culture from the top of the organization. Nicola great to have you with us today. I wonder if you could start by telling me a little bit more about your journey from leaving university to joining the oil and gas industry and in particular I'd love to hear a little bit about your time at the Scottish Police Federation. Yeah, I can do that. So initially, Amy, I didn't study a law. I actually studied politics. And when I graduated, my first job was in the civil service. So I joined their graduate program and I worked in the home office in London and then what was the Scottish office then. And I, I worked for the criminal justice unit and which was super exciting. I worked on lots of pieces of research, including the Dumbleen inquiry. I worked on proposals for life sentence prisoners, domestic violence, and I worked on an amalgamation of the police forces. So at that time, the Scottish government were looking at amalgamating their eight police forces into one. So that was kind of the mainstay of what I was working on. And during that time, I worked closely with the Police Federation, and they were looking for a head of research. And it was really at the time that the Scottish Parliament was formed. So they were looking at a new way of or a new parliament to be lobbying. Initially, the the Scottish Police Federation relied on the the English Federation to lobby the main parliament. It was also a time of intense scrutiny for the police, uh, which is pertinent in in the climate we're in today. The Stephen Lawrence inquiry had just reported, and also there was this sad murder of Damaloa Taylor and the inquiry into that, and the police were under scrutiny for for their role and, and how they dealt with black communities in all essences. So I worked on our responses to those inquiries and also really on lobbying the new Scottish Parliament. And whilst I was working for the police, I studied at Strathclyde University for my law degree. So it was a pretty intense two years of working and, and studying, but you know, it was a great experience. Yeah, got that. You must have not got much sleep <laughs> during that time. <laughs> yeah. It was a busy time. So what kind of prompted you, had it always been something of interest to move into doing kind of the law conversion or was it something that came out of the time that you'd spent in in the role that you were in? So I did a couple of law courses. When you do an ME at Edinburgh University, which is where I studied politics, you can choose some other courses to sit alongside. So I did some sociology I political theory, but I also did some law courses and that really was the was the first spark. And then when I moved to the Scottish office and the home office, I was obviously working with lots of the Quangos and I'd be working with the Scottish Courts Administration and basically anything or any new policy would involve uh, all those those interested bodies. So I ended up working quite a lot with the Procure Fiscal's office, uh, especially on things like the Dumbleen inquiry and the license sentence prisoners work. And yeah, I really got sparked, I think, by that. So it was a good opportunity when I went to the police and there was an ability to, to do this, the law degree that to go for it. So that was where I where I ended. I didn't actually have an intention of, there was no thoughts of oil and gas law or Aberdeen or anything at that time. I just thought I'll get the qualification and then, and then see where it takes me. 
Yeah, so that's going to be my, my next question is then obviously the move from that into a more focused oil and gas or, or more focused oil and gas roles. I suppose, how did that start? And then what has kept you in the oil and gas industry? What kind of sparked that interest? Yeah, so I moved to Aberdeen actually to work for the principal of the University of Aberdeen. It's his, it was an American title. He was, he'd worked in America for, for a long time and, and the title was special advisor. But, but really it's quite similar to working in private office in the civil service. So I was involved in fundraising campaign for the university's Institute of Medic Sciences. I, I was writing speeches for principal and articles. And I, whilst I worked at the university, I also did my diploma in legal practice, which is required. And then I ended up doing a joint traineeship with the university where I worked in their, their research facility doing, doing all their contracts and also a local law firm. So that was quite unusual, but I, it, was a, it was a good way of doing my qualification while still, while still working. So when I qualified, I went to work for the law firm in, in Aberdeen and started doing banking and corporate work and then moved into some oil and gas work whilst I was doing my traineeship. And on qualifying, I chose to work in the oil and gas department. And I think really what, if I'm honest, what, what sparked it was, you know, I wasn't sure about Aberdeen when I moved here. I'd worked in London and Glasgow and Edinburgh, and I come from a small town in the north of Scotland, and it almost felt like going back to a small town city when I moved to Aberdeen. And, and then I realised it wasn't really like any other small city. In the sense, it was pretty international. So I would go to friends' barbecues and there'd be 30 different nationalities at their barbecues. And, you know, working with oil and gas, I had clients in the UK, but also in the US, uh, Europe, Asia. And, and it was a really exciting time for the industry. So to be honest, it, it was a no-brainer to end up doing that work if you're living in Aberdeen. Yeah. And what about the move from kind of private practice to in-house? Um, what happened there? So I've been at, uh, in private tr- practice for about four years. And then it's quite common for oil and gas private practice lawyers to go on to comments. And that's exactly what I did. I went on to comment to Care McGee, which is an American company that was being acquired by Maersk Oil, the Scandinavian company. And it's also quite common for private practice, especially in oil and gas, actually get some in-house experience. So when I was offered a position then post the transition with Maersk, I decided to join with an initial view of, well, maybe I'll do this for a few years and then take that back into private practice. And actually I had such a good career with Maersk that I, I never left until recently when I when I joined Spirit. Yeah, that's, that's maybe a good time then to, to talk a bit about Maersk and the difference between, you know, what is a, a much larger entity in Maersk versus where you are now in terms of spirit energy and a slightly smaller company. Maybe, you know, you could talk us through a little bit around, I suppose, some of the, the pros and cons of a smaller company like Spirit versus your time at Maersk. Yeah, uh, so Spirit's about a third the size of Maersk Oil. So Maersk Oil was part of the AP Muller Maersk conglomerate. Most people know Maersk for it, the shipping business, basically, which is the largest part of it. But Maersk Oil was, you know, had about 3,000 people and had a wider geographical outreach, I suppose. So, you know, at Maersk, I'd be working in negotiations in Kazakhstan, Angola, Qatar. Whereas in Spirit, we have a much more defined geographical space of Northwest Europe. And, you know, whilst I have great, I have great memories of my time at Maersk and the development in my career that it afforded me, I was given great opportunities. 
it was a family-owned conglomerate and that was sometimes challenging in terms of the direction that we wanted to take the company uh, when our owners also had to consider how that impacted the shipping business and the other the container business and the other Maersk businesses so we were always looking for capex and fighting for capex basically in, in line with those other businesses I think what's what great about Spirit is we're focused on what we want to be so we we state that we're a northwest Europe BMP company and we want to be agile in our delivery. I mean, those are two of our, our core values. And, you know, a lot of companies say that, but I can genuinely say that, you know, our shareholders allow us to be that independent, agile company. So some of the deals that we've done, you know, and that I've been involved in, in fact, on day one, when I joined Spirit, we were a deal and there were some areas of it where we were able to be agile that I wouldn't have seen in maybe a bigger company where there was more stakeholders to manage. So that's good. And I think another pro for me in being part of Spirit is that we are, you know, we're only two years since inception in 2017. And so we're really being part of designing our own company and the, the culture that we want to have. You know, Maersk had a great brand and a, and a great culture, but it was really well established. So for me, I've been able to take the good things that I thought about Maersk and actually my input into, into Spirit and where we want the company to go. Yeah, that's great. What over the last couple of months, obviously, you know, the the industry has has faced a couple of hurdles. What has that meant for for a company like Spirit or, or potentially kind of Spirit itself? You know, obviously, you are very focused on Northwest Europe, so you have kind of a, a clear demarcation around what you're focusing on. What's been the impact of both the kind of low oil price and COVID nineteen, and and how do you think it will impact both Spirit and the industry moving forwards? Yeah, so the, I mean, the last the last few months, even before COVID nineteen, to be honest, had have been challenging for the industry, and, and Spirit's no exception. First of all, we have the logistical challenge of COVID. We're all mainly working from home, but we do have folks offshore and at our terminals. So our priority has really been keeping them safe and getting used to a new way of working for all of us. So we're lucky that we haven't been impacted yet terribly by by COVID in the sense of we've had one case offshore and, and some suspect cases, but we have some, you know, a good network in place. And I think this is where our industry is good at coming together. And we and we did that very quickly with coming together as an industry to have a designated helicopter, for example, for taking people with suspected cases onshore quickly to get them proper treatment. So there's been those kind of logistical challenges. And then, you know, related to that, and and like I say, before COVID, we've had the commodity price challenge, which I think has meant everybody looking at at cash flow and taking appropriate measures. And, and for us, that's been in, in all areas. So we've looked at our GNA, we've been looking at our CapEx spend, we've looked at ABEX, uh, we're looking at exploration. I mean, really, no stones being unturned. And I think it's fair to say that most people will be going through that, especially in 20 and 21. They're going to be, they're going to be tough years. But yeah. we also need to look at the longer term impact. You know, we want to be a sustainable company. So the decisions we're making now, we have to look at how they impact five years, 10 years out. So, I mean, that's basically what we've been doing since since for most of this year is looking at how we get through 20 and 21 and the impact longer term so we can make sure we keep the right levels of investment. 
Sure. Yeah, I think that's important to, to mention in terms of the longer term. You know, a few of the debates that we've had through the Oil and Gas Council recently are focused on, in particular for small to mid-cap companies, what the future looks like in terms of additional cost rationalisation, in terms of the potential for future exploration, and obviously the cost that comes with that, acquiring talent, and, and also obviously the sustainability element and the move, you know, in many circles towards the energy transition. How do you imagine kind of those challenges or all those hurdles kind of impacting spirit over the next few years? So we're not stopping investing. So we've definitely reduced investment, but we haven't dropped it altogether. We have license commitments in, in the various geographical areas that we're in. And it's more to be, I think for the next couple of years, it's more been working with partners, most of whom are in the same situation and with governments to look at, you know, okay, we've committed to drill this well this year. Can we move that to next year? So it's, it's more looking at short term and what we can do to push possibly commitments out to then looking at the longer term focus. I think sure. in terms of energy transition, we're it's fair to say I think we're early in our in our journey on that at, at Spirit. And we need to establish what a company our size can do. I mean we we do rely on the majors to be, to be leading the way in the, the energy transition field. But I do think we all have a part to play in it. Right now for us, we have a, an energy transition manager. So that's quite a new appointment. And they're looking at, I think the first steps is knowing what you, you're doing and what you have. So, I mean, part of it's good business. In 2019, we made a lot of progress in decarbonizing our operated assets and, and minimizing emissions. But that was really through better production efficiency, which of course is good business and has a good knock-on effect in terms of the emissions, basically. So we need to look at what we have so and what we can measure. So we measure carbon emissions and intensity in parts of our company, but we have an aim to do that, be able to do that for all our emissions and also looking at things like methane numbers. And then we'll look at what role we can play in terms of areas like increasing energy efficiency, reducing our flaring, you know, what we can do in the field of power generation. But for us, it is pretty early days in terms of looking at the role that, that we can play in for the size that we are. Sure. I think well, you have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> so I think it sounds like that you're off to a good start. Yeah, I mean, the drive is there. And I mean, and the same as it comes into the culture that our CEO is passionate about having in, in terms of just being a great place to work, looking at our responsibilities in terms of everything from uh, DNI to energy transition. So and that, it's good to be part of it. Yeah, you mentioned in your bio on the Spirit Energy website that working across different sectors has been integral to, to you in your career. I think often we talk about the oil and gas industry sometimes being slower at, at taking up kind of change and, and particularly kind of technology and, and looking ahead. What do you think the oil and gas industry could learn from other disciplines? So, I mean, I think the oil and gas industry has learned from other disciplines, but I also think we've led the way as well in, in certain areas. And you know, areas like you know, good supply chain practice. There was a lot. There was a period where we were really taking learnings from the automotive or the aerospace industries, in, in terms of how they they run their supply chain. Technology transfers and another one, and I guess more recently, digitalization and even things like organisational agility. So right now we're all in this situation where we're looking at what the new norm is for working, how good we are at being able to put cross-department teams in quickly to, to solve issues. And those are things that have been in other industries and that we've pulled from. But I also think that we're leading the way in terms of, we, you know, if we look back to our history of the industry and how we've adapted and developed in 
terms of the technology that we use, things like horizontal drilling, for example, to be able to get to different reservoirs and you know work in tougher climates. I think it's that same spirit, pardon the pun, that will take like, <laughs> us through to the energy transition because it's our engineers, it's our technical folks that are going to be the ones at the forefront of that industry as well. It's just knowing where the it's finding our feet in terms of the timing and the because there's a you know there's a period where we still need the traditional forms of energy as we move to more renewable forms and it's i think that's where the space we're in right now is that period of focusing on you know the the assets we have and the the need for oil and gas but also giving the adequate time and resources to transition to the next phase Sure. Let's talk about some more kind of personal things. You mentioned in a in a recent book, it's Katie Heidenrich's book, that you've often had to step outside of your comfort zone in order to move to the next stage of your career, which I think is probably something that many people can understand. Um, I wondered if you could tell me a bit about some of those experiences and, and what you've learned from them and, and that kind of how they've shaped you in your roles moving forward. Yeah, so, so my last company was came uh, for me to move into more general management and I suppose to broaden my, my leadership experience. And that's probably, to be honest, why I stayed there so long, because I never really did a job for more than two or three years. I was always either taking on some extra responsibility or moving and doing something different. So I took on the HR director role for three years. And unfortunately for, you know, that was at the time of the last downturn about, about six years ago. So, you know, I learned a lot during that time and working with that part of the business. I also managed external relations and internal comms and then uh, laterally at, in commercial. The last two years at Maersk, I spent a year, first of all, working on Maersk becoming independent. So the, I guess similar to the Spirit story with Centrica as a, as a shareholder, the conglomerate decided to spin off the energy businesses and I worked for a year with the teams in Copenhagen on Maersk coming independent from AP Muller Maersk with our view of ultimately listing. And, and then during that time, we were acquired by, by Total and I worked then for the final year at Maersk with the lead at Total running the, the integration for for those two businesses in the UK. So those roles definitely shaped me from seeing another side than the pure legal side for my, my current role. Yeah, I, I have to say, like, I think, you know, we obviously speak to a lot of oil and gas executives across various, you know, sizes of companies and geographies. And I'm, I'm always so amazed at the number of different roles that people can hold through the organisations. And I think it's one of the, you know, the best things about the industry to have that experience in so many different roles and countries and, and departments. I think it really helps to kind of shape your experience and, and make you maybe a, a better, more well-rounded person. Yeah, because I think you're, I mean, you're seeing things from all sides of the business. I mean, in some senses, my discipline sees our business from cradle to grave because we're one of the few functions that end up involved from exploration slide right through production to decommissioning. But it is and can be focused purely on, on the legal part of it. I think when you understand other parts of the business, it makes you a better, more pragmatic lawyer in my case and, you know, makes my team, I think, more pragmatic and when they understand the business and get interested in the other areas that they're supporting. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Well, one of the reasons that we're having this conversation today is you've been included and, and voted into the uh, Women's Energy Council 275 Influential Women Leaders list. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion within the oil and gas industry. Have you seen a change in how DNI is discussed and actioned in the industry since you started? And, and if you have, how has that looked? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen a, seen a change I guess it wasn't discussed when I joined the industry or, or not very much. I remember going to, you know, kind of these courses on oil and gas, oil and gas industry for non-technical people. And, you know, there'd be comments that, you know, it was one of the majors rolling out their one and only female technical person to, to speak <laughs> and, and those kind of things. But then working for a Scandinavian company, it was, it was quite enlightening in the sense that I think Scandinavian companies and their society in general are just way more advanced, especially in gender balance. So, for example, it's normal for couples to work, both couples to work, and it's normal for both couples, you know, for couples to share childcare, to finish at four, to pick up the kids. They have generous maternity, paternity leave policies. So, so that was good. And, and also we had a, a good representation of women in senior management and you know more largely our CEO and our head of strategy were both women and actually both on both on your list so um, <laughs> yes true <laughs> and you know for me personally I Gretchen and Christine were great mentors and role models and I learned a lot from them so one of the exciting things about joining Spirit is you know it was announced at our inception that we wanted to be a fully diverse and inclusive company and you know a lot of companies say that, but I genuinely believe it's not just lip service. It comes from our CEO, which I think is super important that that tone is really set from our CEO and our executive team. And, you know, he's really passionate about the culture that he wants to develop at Spirit. We have, so some of the things I've seen changes, we have a director of diversity and inclusion now. It's a post sitting within our HR team, and I haven't seen a post like that elsewhere. And, you know, we have a network of groups which are run by our employees. And, you know, as well as the usual gender balance, ethnicity, LGBTQ groups, we also have a group just focusing on working parents. I, I mean, they're busy right now with the support that people need working from home and, yeah. and you know, trying to do childcare and they've come into their own in, in this pandemic. Uh, but we also have groups for people who are carers or have looking after people with disabilities can reach out. And each one of our XCOM members is involved in one of these groups and I'm the overall sponsor of the network. I think what's great about the network and, and Spirit's approach is that, you know, we're there to learn from our employees and, you know, we've taken some suggestions, we've implemented great flexible working policies, we've run unconscious bias training for all our managers, we insist on diverse interview panels, you know, and a raft of other things, some of which, you know, we come up with because it's the way that the world is moving, but quite a lot of it comes up from the comes from the employees and from our networks who say that, you know, if you want to unlock diversity at a certain level, then you, you need to have better flexibility in terms of childcare, because if not, women won't accept these positions that, you know, middle management and these types of things. So, you know, we're really taking that on board. You mentioned about, you know, Gretchen and, and other senior women being mentors. We've talked to a lot to other women in the industry about kind of that difference between mentors and sponsors and the importance of both what's your view on kind of the difference between mentoring and sponsorship and the role that both of them play for women in the industry so i think it's good to have formal mentoring programs we have that as Spirit and different levels are mentored by different levels and, and each of the excom at any one time will be formally mentoring three or four of our of our 
employees, not just from a DNI perspective, just from you know our, our talent pipeline. So I think it's great to have that for multi because it's a, it's a space where you can really, I suppose, mentor in, in the way that mentoring is supposed to be done. I think for me, I also got a lot of benefit from just being able to have a conversation with Gretchen, with Christine, to be able to say, I've come up against this. How would you deal with it? Or, you know, for me in my own journey, which, you know, I'm happy to share for a long time, I didn't like being signaled out as a female. I hated the thought that people would say I only got a job because I was female. I only got a role as a non-exec because they needed to make up numbers on the board. And I, I hated that because I actually felt in some ways you almost have to work harder to be recognized. And actually, I suppose in my journey and from speaking to them, it was you know, I guess I've grown and I now feel a responsibility towards other females to role model, to mentor and to encourage and to be there for people to kind of come and have a chat with and say, I'm thinking about this job, but I'm not sure, I, you know, it doesn't mean it's going to be more hours. I'm not looking on and definitely think there's a role to play with women in, in encouraging and listening and, you know, showing that there's another way to think of things. So, you know, a good example I have is that when you are offered a new role, or a sideways move. If I think about going into the HR sphere for a period, I think we have a tendency, and it's, it's, it's a bit stereotypical, but I think we have a tendency to, as females to think that we need to be 100% perfect on day one, rather than taking on a challenge, not knowing everything, and then just re realizing that you'll grow into that role. So I think there is an element where we need to remove barriers for women. But I think there's another element where we need to encourage women not deselect themselves without actually having had a chance to think through that, you know, taking on a promotion doesn't mean that it's more work necessarily. It just means it's different work. You go from doing individual work to managing people. So it's those types of openness and, and sharing your own experience. I think have been helpful to me and I hope is helpful to other females that I interact with. Yeah, at PwC, I think, did a piece of research a few years ago around how women and men approach job descriptions and job promotions. And, and women will look at it and look at all the things that they don't know how to do. And men will look at all the things they do know how to do and tend to apply for the job, you know, without really overthinking it too much. Whereas a woman might think, oh, that they're not quite ready. So I think it's really important that you can have that conversation internally with women who are maybe looking for the next step and give them the confidence to go for it. And that a lot of what you do, I guess, is learning on the job. Yeah, and I think sharing your own journey is important as well. There's been, you know, initially, if I think back to the kind of 80s role models, it was all super women that could have it all and don't necessarily think that's that's helpful. I think it's much more honest to be able to kind of say, you know, well, this is this has been difficult in my journey, but, you know, this is how I, I overcame it or this is, you know, what I asked for. And I think another thing I would say to women is don't be scared to, say what you want to do in your career and also what you need to achieve it so be upfront about it. i think another thing that men typically do better is to to look ahead and say this is what i want to do and you know i want to do this that and the next to get to that stage i think the oil and gas industry you know in some areas maybe has kind of a, a perception um problem with some of kind of the younger talent that's coming into the industry at the moment or, or that they're trying to attract into the industry specifically for women what would you say to kind of younger women or, or graduates who are coming into the industry today? What kind of advice would you give them? 
I think, I mean, some of the things that we've just talked about, I think to embrace it, there's lots of exciting things. And this is to any graduates coming into the industry. It's still a really exciting industry. And, you know, the next generation are going to come in and they're going to be at the forefront of the energy transition. They're really going to be the ones driving that and, and leading the way. So, you know, from that side of things, it's an exciting industry to come and join to, to be part of taking us to the, the next stage. I think for women specifically, it is to... You know, they're hopefully joining an industry that's a lot more open and a lot more understanding in, in terms of, you know, the, the barriers that might be, have been there in the past. I like to think that our young females are certainly in, in my company that they don't feel like there's those barriers there anymore, that they can progress in their careers, they can have families, they can go through their, their lives and, and be fulfilled from their work and their that work-life balance. And but I would say to them to, to also don't be scared to actually tell their managers what they need and to, to help us because some of us have been around for a long time and we need that new generation coming in to, to help us understand how, how things work. Everything from you know, the technology that's, that's coming at us, the energy transition and also in the DNI space. Sure. I mean, it sounds like at Spirit, you know, both the CEO and the senior management team have a great approach to diversity and inclusion. What do you wish other senior leaders, you know, perhaps in other businesses understood about DNI? I think it's it's really to that it's worth challenging ourselves. It's it's not something to pay lip service to. And if you go back to maybe first principles and and actually our our gender group is, is chaired by one of one of my colleagues, Neil. He said it great. He said, I've got a son and a daughter and I want the same opportunities for them in life. You know, and who could argue with that really? Yeah. I mean, uh, and, the, and the same goes for in the in the ethnicity space or or anybody that's that's coming to work, you want the same opportunities. But so the one thing is don't pay it lip service. The other thing is that if you do invest in it, it's you know you can really see there I mean there's lots of well documented benefits of having diverse teams not just from the, the gender or the ethnicity, but also in the diverse ways of thinking and getting the most from pulling on, on those, I guess, diversity of thought in teams. And I think we've, it's been too easy in the past to say that we can only employ from the, the pool that we've got. And there's not many women or ethnic minorities, so therefore we, only, we can only employ who we get. And I don't think that's true anymore. I think that, uh, I mean, I've definitely seen the benefits when I started in my, my last company on the management team. There, I was the only woman in a management team of 12. And by the time I left, it was 50-50. And there's just great benefits in having, having that diversity on a, on a team. Yeah, I definitely have different diverse thoughts than <laughs> than the men in the team. And I think it does make for a much more rounded conversation to have those different voices. So I, yeah, I definitely agree with that. As, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you're, you're part of that 275 Influential Women's Leaders list. What do accolades like that mean to you? I mean, it means a lot. I mean, it's, it's always great to be recognised in your field and you know when I look at the bios of the other women leaders you know of course it makes me proud to be to be proud of, to be part of it there's some exceptional people there and it's I think it's exciting that we've got the the Women's Oil Council to really showcase that talent I think as I said before you know for a long time I struggled with being singled out as you know female anything but now I think it's great to be a role model and to be able to encourage women in their careers yeah. So as we as we come to the end of the interview, I just have a, a couple of questions that I still want to ask. The, the one is, 
you know you've achieved a huge amount over the last I don't, I don't want to say how over how long <laughs> but in your career what would you say is kind of the career goals that you still have on your to-do list I'd love to take a company through an IPO and BGC of a listed company I, I was close at Maersk and 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 that was also something that was potentially on the cards for Spirit when I joined but I think really for me that I think as I, as I said earlier the it's great to be part of a company, a new company that, you know, I can see that our brand is becoming, I suppose, more, more widely known. It's, we're really forming a culture at Spirit and, and being part of that. It's, it's been not quite a blank page because, of course, we have shareholders who are interested in, in the company that we are. But it's pretty exciting to be part of shaping this company and, you know, to be part of growing it. So that's, that's still on the to-do list for me. Sure. That's, I think it's probably answered my last question, which is, you know, what is it about this industry that keeps you interested and excited and, and wanting to work in it? And you know, especially during more difficult times like the ones we're facing now that keep you kind of getting out of bed in, in the morning and, and wanting to do this job. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still a really exciting, exciting industry to be in. It's still dynamic. And, you know, we talked about the energy transition and the role that, that we have to play in that. I think also, and you know, and, and it's in all fields. So in my own field, I, I have the commercial and the legal teams reporting into me. So you know, we've been adapting too. So there's new commercial ways of doing a M and A. So doing deals, they've they've really come a long way from the kind of bog standard uh, buyer seller arrangements. Uh, we're also looking at new ways of funding developments and and also new ways of, of dealing with decommissioning. So even within you know, my own traditional sphere, there's things that are pretty exciting and, and you have to move with it. So I think that's been the, the main thing about our industry is it's had to evolve to stay relevant. And right now it's in its, I suppose, its biggest challenge to keep relevant, keep supplying the energy that the, the world needs, but at the same time, you know, going through a massive transition. Yeah. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your journey and your tips and, and what you're looking forward to moving forward. And, and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Yep. And thank you for including me as, as part of the Women's Oil Council. It's, it's definitely a privilege. You're welcome.